which sounds unusual. I was actually thinking, but I was thinking a little while ago and uh, thinking how the church is a miracle. The, the church is an absolute miracle. It's, it's been attacked since the beginning of Pentecost, literally right after that, with false teachings, with hate toward it, with men so angry at Christ, <laughs> the world, basically, and yet it continues, and it's filled with sinful people, which I include myself, of course. It's filled with sinful people. It's led by sinful leaders, and yet it continues. It's, you know, when you think about that, Christ said that I will build my church, he said. You know, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, it's a supernatural thing. I, I look at this and I, I see this beautiful day outside. And then I think, what would make people not want to be out doing something on a Sunday, but actually come inside and sing and pray and listen? but for the work of Christ, of His great salvation, of what the life that He gives us. Oh, if only I pray, beginning with myself, that we could just begin to grasp what this eternal life in God means for us. Uh, we would live so differently, I think. You know, I mean, we all, I know, each of us, if we were to go around or in your heart, you believe, you know, I'm trying what I can, but how much more could we be living for Christ and living? I, I love that last hymn we did. I, love, I, I, tell you, I appreciate the, uh, the worship band. Uh, really, uh, really uplifting worship. And it just think of that last song, Oh, Victory in Jesus. We have the victory. We have victory over sin and death because of what Christ has done for us. Do we really grasp the reality of that? Do we really consider that? Do we meditate on that? Just that my sins have been forgiven. I don't fear death anymore. I don't have to fear death. And again, I'm not talking about the process. I'm talking about, of course, there's always that. Even Christians... You know, the idea of dying is always like, is it going to hurt? Is it going to be long? Am I going to suffer? Or, not that, but the prospect after. What happens the minute the lights go out and they come back on? And the Bible tells us that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That should, that should give us a hope that should drive us forward continually in this, as John says, as we live in this world, this system opposed to Christ, you know, filled with what we talked about last week, antichrists, those who are against Jesus. Jesus made it clear in Matthew 12:30. He said, "He said, for any, for he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters." He made it such a clear line. You are either, you belong to Christ or you're against him. There's no 
you know, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle, you know. No. Jesus says you're either with me, and if you're not, you're against me. How strong the message Paul in, in Romans, as he ends the letter in 16, 1622, that's the chapter and verse, not the date, uh, in 1622, and he, he says, you know, those who do not love Jesus, the Lord, he says, those who do not love the Lord, a curse be on them. That's strong talk. Think about the Apostle Paul. How, how nurturing and loving he was to these churches. And at times he, you know, put down, the, you know, he, he uh, put down discipline too when he had to, when, it was, when there was sin. But in that loving, he says, you know, a curse be on those who don't love the Lord. That's strong talk. You know, but again, if you're not for Christ, you're against Christ. And he makes that clear. And if you want to turn to 1 John, I'm going to try to cover more ground today, a little larger chunk. And to get a feel of what John is talking here, I want to read you something. I've read it before. But it was from Ephesians chapter 20. Paul, 40 years before, is prophetically laying out what is going to be taking place as he, he talks to the elders in the Ephesian, Ephesian church when he's giving his farewell there. And it's interesting because many believe that John, now 95 A.D., or 90, more, maybe 90, between 90 and 95 A.D., we're not sure the date, that when John writes this, he might possibly be writing to the church at Ephesus. He doesn't give, it's a general letter, it would appear. It's not titled to any specific church, but many feel because John was an elder at the church in Ephesus until he died, it's believed, until he was a very old man. When he, was, when he was exiled to Patmos and the Lord gives him the revelation of Jesus Christ, he was an elder in Ephesus. So they're believing he had close ties with Ephesus and they believe it might be from Ephesus. But as he writes to them, he says, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flocks of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. Again, he's talking to the elders, the leaders of the church there. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth. That's what John is dealing with in this letter. Men who distort the truth. Later on, he calls them liars. They're heretics. They're trying to add to the gospel. They're trying to say you don't have enough knowledge of Christ. You don't, what, you just... You don't have enough knowledge. We have this secret knowledge, this special knowledge, and without that, you're not going to be saved. 
They're basically saying that salvation does not come from Christ. Now we know as a fact, the whole Reformation, one of them the, at, right at the forefront was what? How is a man justified? By grace through faith alone. The church, the Roman church, had built it up to a point where it was the grace of God and faith and all this that the church has to offer. And the sacraments. It was basically salvation by sacraments. It had come. And Luther was at that time refuting that and calling it out. And John here, what, 1,400, almost 1,400, over 1,400 years, he's doing the same thing, John here in the beginning. Just after, just after say, uh, Pentecost was in the 30s, 60 years after, after the founding of the church, the day of Pentecost, John is, is fighting off these heresies as he writes to them. And the church is still susceptible to it today. And people still hear teachings in the Christian church that lure them away at times. And it's no different today. We have to be so careful. That's why Paul told Timothy, guard your life and your doctrine closely. Doctrine is important. What you know about Christ is everything. Because if you don't have it right, then you're not saved. Because think about today what's happening with Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons. They preach a different Jesus. The Jesus of the Scriptures is not the Jesus they teach. And if your salvation depends upon the right Jesus, you better make sure you have the right Jesus. And the right Jesus is from the men right who wrote these Scriptures, who walked with Jesus for three years, day and night. So John is working with them, but think about that. He says, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away, he says, disciples after them. So this is what we're, we're dealing with head on today with this in uh, Second John, uh, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 2. And I'll, I'll read from verse 18. We already spent the whole last week on verse 18 basically here but we'll start there and i'll read through it and then we'll look at it dear children this is the last hour and i'll comment on this because we did it last week last hour meaning history basically is is divided in two places it used to be bc and ad before they changed it to the before the common era now bce they refer to it we don't want to say jesus you know <laughs> Heaven forbid that the name of Jesus is brought up in, in, in the world. So anyway, it was B.C., before Christ. The last hour is the time of the Messiah, that second period that deals with the Messiah. We're waiting for his company, and it's the last hour because at any moment Jesus could return. We talked about that last week. I hope you're thinking about his return. Either he's going to come or we're going to take our last breath. One of those two is going to happen. You know, I just, Friday, I was talking to my, my neighbor's son. These, these have been my neighbors for, 
you know, known him for 20 years. And uh, the son and I have actually become very friendly. We have, he walks his little dog he has, one of those cute little custom dogs that they have today. And, uh, and he's 27, and he sees me outside, and we'll always have, we'll have a conversation, you know, we'll talk about sometimes some good stuff. You know, we get into uh, life, death. And anyway, he told me on Friday, he says, my dad, he said, was just diagnosed with stomach cancer. His father's 59, and it sounds very serious. And, you know, when I asked him, how's he doing? He said, he's scared. You know, and it is a scary thought to have, you know, something like that, to have cancer. Even Christians, you get scared at the prospect again of what's going to happen to me in the process. But if you don't have Christ, you have something else to be scared of. What happens when I die? You know, and for us, that should be a point of rest to we know. Do you have peace and know in your heart that when you die, you will be with Christ? I hope so. That's assurance, knowing you're saved. And if you're saved, you have eternal life. In fact, John keeps emphasizing that you have eternal life, he says. We need, as Christians, to get that in our bloodstream, the way we live. It would affect deeply the way we live if we knew, I do have a future. And it's not how much money I can make here and how many toys I can get and how much entertainment I can get every moment of my life. It's all going to end. You know. But anyway, Christ is going to return. He says, dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Okay, we talked about the Antichrist. The first Antichrist he mentions is that man who will come, who will be filled and powered with, by Satan. And he will overtake the world, first by looking like a, 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 a peaceful person and making peace with the Jews, and they'll set up the sacrificial system again. Yes, they're going to actually set up a sacrificial system again. And then after three and a half years, he stops everything, he goes in the temple, and he proclaims himself as God. And remember the mark of the beast, you've all heard of that. You know, and this is not now who we're talking about today. We talked about that last week. He says the Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come. We talked about that. Those are those, anyone who is not saved is an Antichrist because they're either against, and that word, if you remember, means to be against Christ or to take the place of Christ. And Jesus made that clear in Matthew 12, 30. He said, for false Christs and false prophets, he says, will appear. He says, performing signs and miracles to deceive the elect. And then he adds, if that were possible. But then what is his warning? He says, so be on guard. And John is talking about that the Antichrists have come. In other words, those who are against Jesus. And this is how we know. He says, this is how we know it is the last hour. Because the Messiah has come, but there's all these antichrists against him. He's saying that's one sign of it, because when, the anti, when, the, when Christ came, the Messiah, right away there were those who opposed him. And John says, ah, he says, we're in that last time now. Messiah was here. 
but there's those who are all opposed to him. And then he says in verse 19, then they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So these false teachers come in the church. They're infiltrating the church. And that's one of the greatest dangers the church has. Not always the outside fear of, of us being influenced by the world. And that is an influence, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But it's what goes on and what's taught within the church. And those who come in and start to introduce these doctrines that don't line up with the apostolic teaching, the Scriptures. And John says, he says, they went out from us. They left, he says, but they did not really belong to us, for if they had, he says, if they were part of us, they would still be here. But they came in, these teachers. They spread their poison, and a number of people drank it, and left with them. Then they left. But people left the church to follow them. Just like Paul said, how prophetic is that? When Paul's speaking to them, he says that they're going to come and they're going to make disciples to follow them. Paul's prophecy to them in Acts 20 is fulfilled here. It's being fulfilled. But now watch. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. That idea of anointing what he's talking about, Paul's writing to Christians, the anointing is for New Testament Christians in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit. And this is deeply rooted, this goes deeply rooted into the Old Testament. At, in the Old Testament, and it's in, in Leviticus as well, we see that, plus I'll give a couple examples here, that the idea of anointing was the idea of of taking and setting apart someone. It's, it's an authority to set them apart and give them authority for some special task or some ministry. So they were set apart for this. And what the anointing was that the priest would come and he would pour the oil over the head and the oil represents the Spirit of God. And what that was saying symbolically is that as that oil is poured on the head of this person, God's Spirit is coming over them and He's giving them the ability to do this task. They've been set apart for that task. And usually it was for kings. Think of uh, Saul was anointed. Think of especially most of you familiar with David. I think it's 1 Samuel 15, 16 where when uh, Samuel the prophet is told by God, go to the house of Jesse, he says, because one of his sons is going to be the king. He's a man after my own heart. This is the man I want to replace Saul. Saul was a disobedient king. He wasn't following the Lord. And God says, I want you to go and anoint my king here. And what happens? Remember, the seven sons, they're all they're, they're parading before Samuel, and he keeps getting excited, saying, oh, this guy's really, he's big, he's good looking, he's this, he's that, he's, he's the one, he's the one. And God keeps saying, uh-uh, no, Samuel, just keep there. Finally, Samuel says, is there anybody else? And Jesse says, yeah, out in the field, 
is my youngest son. He's shepherding out there. He's a teenager. You know, he's, he's out there. So Samuel says, bring him over. He brings him, and the Lord says, that's him. Samuel, I want you to anoint him. And remember, Samuel takes that horn of, filled with oil, and he pours it over David's head, and it run, the oil would come and just run down all over the person like that. I wonder how that felt. I can't know. You a little bit, you know, like you're having oil all over you. But <laughs> anyway, uh, but the idea is the symbolism that the Spirit of God is being poured out. In the Old Testament, remember, it, you, the phrase would be that the Spirit came upon, especially with the judges. Remember the period of judges right after Joshua dies and. There's in, in the late 1300 B.C., then there's that period of about 350 years or so where there is no king, but God appoints judges whenever there's a problem where the Israelites are being harassed or being attacked, and they raise them up. And the idea was that the Spirit of the Lord came upon them. Sa Samson, you see that a lot. Remember Samson, the Spirit of the Lord, and he'd get this tremendous superhuman strength. Killed a thousand Philistines, remember, with the jawbone of an ass. He had the jawbone and he beat them all down. That's superhuman. That's the Spirit of God upon them. But it doesn't say the Spirit came within them. But now the New Testament, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes in us. He abides in us. He dwells in us. How often do you think about that? That God's Spirit Spirit lives in us. Think about sometimes your thoughts, where they go. Think about sometimes where stupid stuff gets you angry. Think about how you relate to others. Does that show the way we behave that the Holy Spirit is in us? Are we living like Christ, who is our example? Do we live as if the Spirit of God actually dwells in us? You know, we need, to, we need to be more aware that the Holy Spirit lives within us. And how many times are we living maybe in an unholy way? How is that when the Holy Spirit is in us? It doesn't, it doesn't jive. We need to live holy lives. You know, we're called to live, be holy. Right from the Old Testament, remember? God says to the Israelites, Be holy, for I am holy. We have the Holy Spirit. We have no excuse when we sin. There is absolutely no excuse. We have the Spirit of God. That's where, at one time, we were under the punishment of sin. We were hopeless. We were going to hell. We were saved. And we were saved from the punishment. But when, also when we're saved, we were given power over sin. We never have to sin. Even go back to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Ah. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. He will provide a way out. The thing is, do I want to take the way out, God's way, 
or do I want to take sin? We can refuse it because we have the Holy Spirit within us. He's the one who gives us the ability to live a pure life. And John reminds them here, he says, you have an anointing, that's the Holy Spirit, from the Holy One, Jesus. It could be God also, because like in Isaiah the prophet, he mentions God, he says the Holy One of Israel, when he talks about the Lord many times. Or this could be Jesus. And all of you know the truth. We have the Holy Spirit in us. We've been given the gospel and the words of God. We know the truth. And the Holy Spirit in us. In fact, I want to read you something from John 14 and John 16. Even the way Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit here. In John 14, verse 15, Jesus is talking, he's promising, he's telling his disciples, they know this is his last night with him, he's going to the cross, they're struggling with this, and Jesus reminds them, he says, I'm not leaving you as orphans. He says, I'm not leaving you alone. He says, I have to go and then the comforter will come, the paraclete, the counselor, and he will guide you. He says, he's going to be with you, so now I'm going to be living in you. My spirit will be in you, the Holy Spirit, God's spirit. He says in verse 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. It's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of truth. Do you hear what he calls the Holy Spirit? The Spirit of truth. Why? Because the Spirit of truth only speaks the truth to our hearts. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, carries out the Father's will as Jesus carries out the Father's will and the Holy Spirit carries out Jesus' will. It's amazing when you think about the Trinity. You think about how three in one, three persons of the Godhead all cooperate. They never argue. They're not, can you imagine if the Holy Spirit was like, if I should say the Trinity was like us? That would be awful, wouldn't it? If God was like us, it would be awful, I mean. But especially if you think about it, I mean, when God the Father, they just, Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. In fact, he said that he only spoke the words that were given to him. And the Holy Spirit only speaks those words that are the truth of God only here. Now, he goes on. Where are, uh, chapter 16 is what I'm thinking of right now. There was one verse I wanted to give you here. Uh, here. He says in verse 12, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when the, He, the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you in all truth. He will not speak His own. He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. He will only speak of what He hears, the words of the Father, the will of the Father and of Jesus. And we have that person, the Holy Spirit, 
living in us. And John is trying to remind them. He's saying, because they've been given lies. And now he's trying to say, you have an anointing. He said, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and he gives you the truth. The truth of God's word, and he confirms that in us. He says, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. He's, I mean, the law of non-contradiction is right here. He said, he's basically saying, you have the truth, and truth cannot be the truth and be a lie. At the same time, the law of non-contradiction says what? A cannot be A and none A at the same time and in the same relationship. And John is saying, truth cannot be truth and untruth or a lie at the same time. It's impossible. It's either truth or it's lie. As John says, it's either light or it's darkness. It's either life or it's death. Either love or hate. John, the man of contrasts, always contrasting here. And he's saying, you have the truth in you. And then he asked the question, who is the liar? It is the man who denies. Now he's directly attacking. John, very rarely in this letter, will directly attack those heretics. The way John does it is he reinforces the truth in them. He reminds them, you're Christians. You are saved. You have the truth, he's saying to them. So here... He says, who is the liar? And then he answers the question, it is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. So who is the liar, he asks? It's the man, he says, who denies that Jesus is the Christ. What were these heretics doing? Go back, in your mind you can, to, to ver chapter 1. He, remember, he lays out who Jesus is. He says, that which was from the beginning. That's God. Only God is from the beginning. And then he goes on to say, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have touched with our hands. He was a man. And John's making it clear, Jesus is the God-man, God incarnate. And the heretics weren't doing that. If you remember... A couple weeks ago, the one group, the Docetists, was saying, well, Jesus was actually a phantom. He wasn't a man. The Corinthians were saying, well, Jesus was a man, and the divine Jesus came into him when he was baptized, but just before he died, he went back out of him. Wrong doctrine of Christ. And John's making it clear. He says, they're liars. He says, it's... They're denying that Jesus is the Christ. And then he uses that term. Such a man is the Antichrist. He's against Christ. He denies the Father and the Son. Interesting, he puts the Son and Father together. What is different about the Christian religion? We know that without Christ, we cannot know God. He is our bridge. Think of uh, in Genesis when Jacob is out in the desert. And he puts his head down and he has a dream. What does he dream? He dreams of that 
staircase going up and down from earth to heaven and the angels moving on it. Who is that staircase? Who is that ladder? Jesus. He's the bridge. He touches from earth and He touches God the Father. He's that bridge. Without Him, we don't have a ladder up to heaven. There is no way you can get to heaven without Christ. You know, it is impossible. You cannot do it. No one can. You know, think at our finest moment, what does Isaiah say? You know, your, your, your righteous works are like filthy rags to God. That means when we're feeling so proud of ourselves, which is a problem to begin with, you know, that boy, we're really, you know, I'm really on a spiritual upright now. You know, God is looking going, Put it in the rag bin, buddy. (laughs) Put it with the dirty rags. That's all it's worth. It's not worth anything like that because of our sin. We can't. But Christ comes and he makes a way for us by doing it for us. And when he says here, he says, such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and Son. What did Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father. Boy, is that exclusive, huh? Very. It's not inclusive. Christianity is not inclusive. It's exclusive. You have to know Christ. He says, you know, and no one comes to the Father except through me. When Peter was standing before all the the high priest and the Sanhedrin and all these these big Jewish scholars and lawmakers there and bosses of, the, uh, of uh, you know, the Jewish people. What does he say at one point in verse 12? Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There is no other name under heaven given to men. It's Jesus or you're not saved. No in-between with that. You have to have Christ. And when you have Christ, you have the Father. It's a package deal. They come as a package. You know, you, you ask the Son to come into your heart. You repent. You ask God for His mercy. And when you get Jesus, you think about it, it's a threefold package. You have Jesus, you get the Holy Spirit, and now you have a relationship with God like that. And John is trying to make it clear. You don't have God if you're following these guys because you don't have Jesus because they're preaching a false Christ. Verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. How clear is that? You know, somebody gives you a hard time and says, why can't I just know Jesus? I mean, why can't I just know God? Why do I have to know Jesus? Show them the Scriptures. Because it makes it clear here. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father. You want a relationship with God? You have to go through Christ. That's God's way. It's His method we don't argue with that. 
You know, people can argue. I argued with that before I was a Christian. I spent hours and hours with a Christian friend. Night after night, I'd go over his house and we, I would debate with him and argue. And I might have told this story, I don't know. And one night I was, then I was saying like, you know, why does God, why does God threaten us? Why do I have to believe in God? Because he's going to send me, I mean the arrogance, he's going to send me to hell? I said, why? he's trying to scare me? <laughs> I mean, I, look, I think back how I talked and I cringe. You know, was, this is when I was probably about 33. I didn't, I wasn't saved till 35. But, and I was arguing with him. And finally, I remember he, he got up and he looked over the table. This is my lifelong friend, still dear friends. 50 years we've known each other, growing up together. And he says, Wally, he says, God can do whatever he wants. And if right now he wants to take his thumb and crush you, he can. He says, I don't want to talk about it. And he got so frustrated with me for weeks and weeks of, and years probably of just debating him on it. He said, that's it. I've had it basically. You know, I don't want to talk about this. I, I got him to the point where he just couldn't take it, you know. But God, the only way is Christ. And I'll never forget the moment that God changed my heart. I kept saying to myself, Jesus is God. Jesus Christ is God. He's my Savior. It just it was like a light went on. And Christ was God. He just wasn't some, you know, some guy in history who was making all these big claims. He was Almighty God. Okay, let me move on here. Verse 24. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. He's not talking about in the beginning. You know, God created. He's talking about when you first heard the gospel, when you first heard the truth of God. He says that remember what you've heard. See that what you heard remains in you. You never, you never let go of the gospel. Once you have the gospel, that stays with you. He says, don't let, don't be fooled, you know, and start adding or or saying, well, maybe I don't need this. I need what these guys are given over here, the secret knowledge they had to offer. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. He says, remain, he says, if you do, you will also will remain in the Son and in the Father. You notice John keeps emphasizing Son, Father, Jesus, God, Jesus, God. He keeps he's ingraining that in them. You can't have one without the other. They're both together. Verse 25, and this is what he promised us, even eternal life. He's reminding the Christians again here. And these are, he's writing to Christians in the church. And he's reminding them, this is the promise you have that comes along with knowing Christ as your Savior. You have eternal life with God, heaven. Boy, that should... We get so used to hearing things like that, I think we get numb. We just kind of take it, yeah. Jesus died for my sins, I'm going to heaven. <laughs> that should be driving us 
that should be driving us further and further to know God, to know this God who would do that for us. Verse 26, now he's going to tell them, again, he's doing one of these, I write these to you, there's several places in the book where he says that. And here in verse 26, I am writing these things to you, and now he, again, he mentions them, he says, about those who are trying to lead you astray. So he's making clear, I'm writing this because there's some bad guys out there, and some of you are buying it. Some of you are falling for it, and you're being led to destruction here. Verse 27, as for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you. He's reminding them again, you have an anointing. You've been set apart by God. You've been assigned here or given authority for this. You have, you're a Christian. You have this task, this life. You have the Holy Spirit in you. He says the anointing you receive from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you here directly again. He's addressing teachers, these guys who were saying, you know, we have the secret knowledge. Remember we said it's early Gnosticism. I, wanna, I, I, I got a, uh, a quote here. I can't remember who he is. <laughs> oh, with age, what happens here? Uh, Hippolytus, early, early writer, Hippolytus during these times, he's writing of these early Gnostics, these false teachers, and he quotes, this is what they said, this is the quote of those early Gnostics, the heretics, quote, we alone of all men are Christians who complete the mystery at the third portal. Ooh, third portal. You know, what does that mean? You know, but these guys have this mystery, this third portal. So he says, we alone of all men are Christians who complete the mystery at the third portal, listen, and are anointed there with speechless anointing. This mysterious cult, these Gnostics, Again, I should say early Gnostics because this is not full-blown Gnosticism till the 2nd and 3rd century. This is just the early roots of it. But listen to that type of language. It enticed some of the Christians. It says, they're claiming to be Christians. We alone of all men are Christians. Okay, these guys are Christians. They're identifying themselves. They're like us who complete the mystery at the third portal. You know, this mysterious language. There's a mystery involved here, and it has to do with this third portal. <laughs> you know. And are anointed. They're saying they're anointed. They've been set apart. They've been assigned to this task here. And are anointed there with speechless anointing. Sounds like a bunch of mumbo-jumbo, quite honestly. You know, but people buy that. People buy this kind of stuff. And so John here, against that type of quote that I'm giving you from early Gnostics, look what he says. But as his 
anointing teaches. I should go back. I'm sorry. Verse 27. As for you, the anointing you received from him, that's Jesus, remains in you. He's saying, don't forget that you have an anointing. You have the Spirit of God within you. He's saying, these people are talking about their mystery anointing. They're speechless. You know, the speechless anointing that takes place is, well, you have an anointing, only it's from Almighty God, and it's His Spirit who's living within you. But as His anointing teaches you about all things, that's the Spirit again, the Spirit of truth. He will guide you, Jesus says, and teach you all things. That's the advantage we have when we read God's Word. We have the Holy Spirit to open our minds and our hearts, which is an important ingredient. We can open our minds, but we better make sure that our hearts are open so that that Word gets in our bloodstream. You know, otherwise you've got just a head filled with Scripture. That doesn't do anything if it doesn't go in the heart. All that stuff has to filter down and then get in our bloodstream so we're living like Christians. And he says, but as his anointing teaches you, uh, you about all things, and as that anointing is real. What is he doing? He's not saying, those guys, that's a fake anointing. But he's saying it this way, saying your anointing is real. He's affirming to them. He's, he's confirming to them it's real. The Holy Spirit is in you. Instead of just, you know, he could just blast away at the other guys. But John's approach, I like it. He's reinforcing truth to them. Instead, he's saying, you have the truth. Just go by that. You know, uh, interesting. Just, just, just a thought here. Uh, He says, you do not need anyone to teach you. And we'll wrap it up. We're almost at the verse. We're just about ready to wrap up. Today, one of my fears is the Christian community is very open and willing to learn. And that's a good thing because educated Christians in the Word are a good thing. But what I find is anytime a new Christian book comes out, people get excited. And they'll spend hours or weeks reading this new book. This guy's a great author. He really he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the And God has given the church teachers. We know that. He's given pastors teachers, he says, to equip the saints to teach us. But what I get afraid of is we don't rely or we, maybe that's the wrong word to say rely. We don't go back to what we already know. In other words, we really, most of you here have enough knowledge to live full, God-glorifying Christian lives. But instead of, in a sense, of thinking about what we know and doing it and applying it, we'd rather, uh, let me get this new, but this guy says some really good, we're so 
we're focused always on reaching out, getting the new teachings, and some uh, and they're good teachings, and they're they're Christian. But we have to be careful that we always don't have this hunger to keep learning new and forgetting about what we already know, the basics of the faith, the solid foundation of the faith. The most uh, humblest Christian, when it comes to knowing the basics of salvation and the Christian life, are no better are, I should say, are just on equal, let me put it that way, equal, to the scholar who has all these lofty uh, theology and good stuff, and we need people like that to, to, to break it down and show us and teach us. But we have to be careful, because lots of times Christians are, oh, I don't really know anything. I don't. You're saved? You know a lot. You know about Jesus. You know about sin. You know about the Holy Spirit. You know about... If we got deeply embedded in the, the roots and truth of the Christian faith and spent more time on remembering what we know and living it and not always being so quick to get a new teaching, a new thing, a new perspective, new on this and that, we'd be okay. You know, just, just don't let the hunger for always something new that's, that's healthy. Again, I don't want to make it sound negative. Of course, it's not. But don't forget what you already know and live by those things because at the, at, I remember someone saying that the, at the cross, the ground is level. And you know what? The, the Christian who is not so mature in his knowledge and the Christian who is, they're both equal to God. So we have to... We always have the idea, oh this, one, oh, this guy went to, you know, he's got 15 degrees. He said, you know what, sometimes the, most, the Christian with the most basic knowledge, if he has faith in what those words, to me, I'd rather be following and listening to this guy who has tremendous faith in those words than someone who has great education, but I don't necessarily see that strength of faith in a person. So we have to, you know, just off the track there, just, but we got to keep that in mind. You know many things. Remember them. Put your faith in those things and, and live them, all of us. Okay. He says, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, the heretical teaches. Just as it has taught you, remain in him. He says, remain in him. That's, that's one of the most important things we need to do, isn't it? Remain in him. You know, we, as we go on, you know, everybody always starts the race and they're running and puffing. You know, people get their gym card, you know, on New Year's and the first week they're going every morning at 4 o'clock in the morning and then it levels off and levels off and by May they're going, well, I haven't been to the gym in two months, but uh, i got to get going again, you know. As Christians, you know, let's keep moving. That what remain in Him, He says, don't lose 
that fervor. Paul says that in, in Romans 12. He says, you know, keep your spiritual fervor. And how do we get spiritual fervor? We spend time with God. We meditate on those words. And we pray and ask the Holy Spirit. to. We need Holy Spirit power. We really do. And John makes it clear. That anointing, we've been anointed. You know, we have the Holy Spirit. Let's live like we really believe that. Okay, let's pray. Father, you've given us everything we need. You gave us your Son. Then you gave us your Word. You gave us your Spirit. Lord, everything we need we have in you. God, forgive us for not abiding in you, for not using those resources that you've given us, Lord, as our life. The Apostle Paul wrote, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And then he says, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Lord, may we remember that Christ lives in us and may we live by faith, trusting every word of your the book you've given us, the Bible, Lord. Trusting those words and living them out through the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord. Help us to stay in truth, the truth of your word. We love you, Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.